Children may be dismissed to junior church at this point. I invite you to turn turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7 in your Bibles. Uh, You can also use a pew Bible or your phone. If you do not have a Bible and you would like one, let me know. I'd be happy to give you a Bible even before you leave today. Uh, We want everybody to be able to have access to the Bible, to the scriptures, to the word of God. It's so powerful, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I just want to thank the praise team uh, for leading us in worship as every week. And that last song, I just love that song as well as um, many of the songs we've sung today. But Jesus and his name is power and brings life and is holy we're on Genesis 8, 15 through 19. I don't know about you. I enjoy watching shows about the supposed end of the earth. You know, like the Weather Channel has those shows. I love the Weather Channel. I could watch it all day. Megan could not watch it all day. But the neat thing, just in case you want to know, Family TV, not spelled the full letter, but FMLY, you can get the Weather Channel for like $4.99 a month. So if anybody wants the Weather Channel, you get like four Hallmark, four Hallmark channels. We don't care about those, but you can get the Weather Channel. And they had a show a couple years ago about how the earth would end. And they have these other shows about other things that are really cool about the earth and survival shows. I guess weather's not interesting enough anymore. So now they have shows about SOS, how to survive, how to survive getting attacked, getting stuck in the snow or getting attacked attacked by a polar bear or a rattlesnake or things like that as well. They have all kinds of cool shows on the Weather Channel. If you're not watching the Weather Channel, you're missing out. It's like a Super Bowl every time you turn it on, okay? Anyways, there was a show a few years ago about how the earth would end, and, and I don't really, as coming from a biblical worldview, I don't really believe that. I believe God could incorporate some factors from that, for example, they talk about, you know, the oceans are losing water and eventually they'll dry up. I mean, there's a lot of water in the oceans, though. I don't know if you realize that. It's going to take some time for the oceans to completely dry up. I think the Titanic's down something like 10,000 feet. I like watching shows about the Titanic, too. It's pretty fascinating. It's down something like 10,000 feet of water. This stuff's pretty interesting to me. There's other thoughts about the sun going into supernova at some point, you know, and things like that. Uh, Others talk about a huge asteroid hitting the earth. And certainly God could cause some of that to happen or allow some of that to happen as he brings about end times things, such as during the tribulation period. That's certainly possible. But we do have some answers about the way the earth will end in our scriptures. Certainly there's metaphor and everything like that. But regardless of what they say, I believe the Bible is accurate. John MacArthur writes this in one of his sermons from a while back. A new book. Now, he says a new book. This was probably 15 or so years ago. Written by a friend of mine, a friend of MacArthur, John Blanchard, an English preacher. And John wrote a book called Does God Believe in Atheists? And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's a big, thick book, fascinating. And John in this book notes that Roger Penrose, who helped to develop black hole theories, estimated as one in 100 billion to the 123rd power, the odds of a big bang producing by accident an orderly universe. So now we're jumping from the theories of the end of the earth to the beginnings of the earth, the beginnings of the universe. And this guy estimates... One in 100 billion 
to the 123rd power, the odds of a Big Bang producing by accident an orderly universe. Now, I, I'm not really a math guy. I find it fascinating math, but once you get past one variable, I'm just lost, okay? Um, Mercedes is trying to get me into that stuff. Now, I'm just lost. But I do know enough to know one in 100 billion to the 123rd power is pretty extreme, you know, pretty extreme here. MacArthur continues, Big Bang theorists argue, says Blanchard, that the universe one second after its purported start had to expand at a rate rapid enough to keep in check the gravitational attraction of galaxies. Stephen Hawking, the famous mathematician, has noted that if the rate of expansion had been, had been smaller by an infinitesimal amount, the universe would have collapsed on itself. In other words, when this theory of a Big Bang, which uh, when it supposedly happened, it had to increase rapid enough, fast enough, otherwise the extreme gravity would have pulled it back upon itself. Now, why am I sharing this? Because I'm leading into the providence of God. Everything is just perfect for life, the way God created the universe, the way God put uh, our solar system where we're at, the way uh, God put earth where we're at in our solar system. Everything is just perfect. Further, Blanchard has some interesting analogies about the likelihood of this happening. He said the likelihood of the universe banging itself into existence in the order that it is currently in would be the odds of hitting a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe or expecting a pole vaulter's pole to remain standing poised on its tip for centuries following the vault. Earth's size, Earth's distance from the sun and rotational speed had to be just right. And if you get into the book, The Case for Faith or The Case for the Creator or The Case for Miracles, Lee Strobel interviews scholars about that very subject. They call it the Goldilocks zone. Everything had to be just perfect, including what they talk about as a Big Bang. Now, I'm not against the Big Bang exactly. In fact, uh, uh, Chuck Colson, in his book... Um, Chuck Colson, whatever that book is called, I'll remember it in a few minutes. Um, it's all those thoughts going through my head that Steve just talked about. <laughs> Chuck Colson in his, in his book, How Now Shall We Live? I think that's what it's called. Talks about when scientists first thought up this idea of the Big Bang, uh, they rejected it. They thought no way because that meant the universe had a beginning. And so I think it was Hubbard as well as Einstein. They recalculated and recalculated and recalculated and thought, no, now what I think of a Big Bang, since I brought it up, is that that's just as far as they can track it back. <laughs> it's actually God creating ex nihilo, ex nihilo, God creating out of nothing. And it just went boom. And he put everything where he wanted it, arranged it where he wanted it in those, in probably really that first day of creation in Genesis chapter one, you know, he just put it that way. And it had to be exactly perfect for life. Um, this says we need the air above, not only for breathing, but to protect us from causing cosmic rays and meteorites. We need light, but not too much ultraviolet, heat, but not too much, and so on. And all of these are in perfect balance. There's a Weather Channel show, another Weather Channel show, about the Earth's gravitational field and the magnetic field, the magnetic field, actually, that surrounds us and actually protects us from other things, including solar rays and things like that. It is just perfect, which I think goes right back to pointing to God and pointing to a creator. Blanchard goes on to ask the question, what about the origin of life? 
A chance, a chance of one out of one comma, 15 zeros. Anything that is one comma by 15 zeros is considered by scientists a virtual impossibility. 15 zeros makes it a virtual impossibility. That's what MacArthur writes exactly. One comma, 15 zeros, the chance of origin of life just happening by accident. DNA code, DNA code discoverer Francis Crick, Francis Crick calculated the possibility of a simple protein sequence of 200 amino acids much simpler than a DNA molecule, originating spontaneously. His figure was 10, 260 zeros. Okay, one simple protein sequence of 200 amino acid, which is simpler than a DNA molecule, originating spontaneously, and his figure 10 followed by 260 zeros. Francis Crick uh, said that. Another quote, three decades ago, Frank Salisbury of Utah State University described the odds this way. Um, Imagine 100 million trillion planets, each with an ocean, with lots of DNA fragments that produce 1 million times per second, with a mutation occurring each time. In four billion years, it would still take trillions of universes to produce a single gene if they got lucky. I mean, it's just staggering impossibilities are his words. In four billion years, it would still take trillions of universes to produce a single gene if they got lucky. All this is pointing to God and his providence, creating and arranging and putting things together exactly as he needed for life and sustaining life. Sometimes we think we are invincible, right? And the younger you are, generally, depending on how your life worked out, the more likely you do think that you can do crazy things and be invincible. But we must remember Jesus holds everything together. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, Jesus holds the very cosmos together by the word of his power. We serve an amazing God. Things are just perfect. I was reminded of this a few days ago. We were watching the new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. And uh, it's pretty cool. Y'all should watch it. Um, No, that's your choice. I'm not endorsing. Anyways, that's not, I don't work for Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, but Strange New Worlds. And they had this world, this planet in some Star Trek sci-fi area. And and this planet had this, some type of um, space cosmic uh, field, ion field or something affecting the ozone atmosphere. And I looked at it and thought, Megan, that probably wouldn't even work. If there's something outer space affecting, affecting a planet, the planet wouldn't have life. The fam- planet likely wouldn't have an atmosphere, wouldn't have, you know, anything. Life is so delicate, and God has perfectly set things up for our planet. It's amazing. God is in control. And we see this continue as we continue the flood narrative. And my theme today is Noah is obedient to the Lord. He does not exit the ark until the Lord tells him to. Noah is obedient to the Lord. He does not exit the ark until the Lord tells him to. His obedience in this passage, we're going to look at just four verses today. His obedience in these four verses are based off what he doesn't do. He doesn't leave the ark until the Lord tells him to. And why do I proceed this, this passage talking about the Lord's, how the Lord delicately and carefully arranged everything in the universe to make it tick in for life. It's just to remind us God is powerful and he's in control and we should obey him. We need him. He doesn't 
need us. God has no needs. I was in a prayer meeting. I might have shared this with you. It might, it might be a repeat, sorry. Um, I'll never do it again. Um, I was in a prayer meeting and somebody shared a quote from some 1950s devotional book. Or It was a book. It wasn't a devotional book. And it said, God has a blank in, his, in himself without us. And we kind of talked about it. And then I spoke. And I said, I don't think that's right. God, God isn't missing anything in himself without us. If God is missing something without us, then God is not perfect. But God is perfect. He's totally, completely self-existent in perfection. He doesn't need us. There's that, and that's what makes the love of God to save us so much more awesome. He didn't save us for himself. He saved us because he loves us and cares about us and wants and desires a relationship with us. That's why he saved Noah. That's why he saved Noah's family. That's why he, he, he saved the Hebrew people time and time again to make a way and provide a way for the Messiah, for Jesus. There were probably billions and trillions of times when Jesus was on earth those 33 years when Jesus could have said, I've had enough. These people aren't worth saving. But you know what? He didn't do that. He wanted to save us. That's why he went through Gethsemane. That's why he went through the cross. He loves us. He cares about us. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9 says God is waiting. He desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. He loves us. He wants a relationship with us. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And not just for eternity, but also for now. Because he cares about you. So Noah is obedient to the Lord. He does not exit the ark until the Lord tells him to. God is sovereign. An article by Marshall Siegel reads, where might we look to see the providence of God in the Bible? We could wrestle with how God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. We could travel the heights and depths of the world with the psalmist. Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. We could visit the rulers and governments on every continent. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away, Job 12:23. We could watch the womb, that wondrous and fragile of homes, where God weaves together every son and every daughter, forming each of their days before they are born. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. You think about how amazing it is, how a baby develops in the womb. How amazing it is that a woman can provide for that baby from her own body and then also feed the baby after they're born. And God set everything up that way. We could contemplate how Christ upholds the universe, galaxies and goldfish, oceans and sunflowers, mountain ranges and mosquitoes. By the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.17. We can even study a simple blade of grass. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Psalm 104.14. All of this might leave us wondering what God does not do. As we have already seen, though it is one thing to observe and acknowledge the providence of God and quite another to embrace providence and cherish providence, to let it have its full emotional effect on our hearts. John Piper writes this. God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty. 
That's how John Piper calls providence. God's purposeful sovereignty. God is sovereign. He has total control. And his providence means that he's being purposeful. He's using his sovereignty to accomplish his purpose, his mission in that blade of grass, in that molecule, in that star or whatever it is. God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty over good and evil in order to humble human pride intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, still in the spine of human courage, gladness in the groans of affliction, and love in the heart that sees no way forward. God has purposeful sovereignty, and we see that in the flood narrative. Too often we are doubting or questioning God Without realizing God is sovereign, he's in control, and he has that purposeful sovereignty that he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and it's his choice, not ours. As I've shared before, if you go to Jonah chapter 1 at the end of the chapter, many people debate the great fish. Was it a whale? What was it? It says the Lord appointed a fish. That fish was destined by by the Lord. And right here, the Lord appointed a flood. He worked out all the details, and Noah understood God was God, God is God, and he was going to obey God no matter what. Come what may, he was going to obey God regardless. Psalm 104.8, the mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you, the Lord, appointed for them. That's referring to the flood. People debate about the water on the earth and how this worked out. The verse Psalm 104.8 describes it. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that God appointed for them. It seems as though it's saying, after the flood, the mountains rose. Some believe also the earth had a canopy of water above it, and that collapsed during the flood. This created the oceans as we know them today. I mean, for all I care, God could have put more water on the earth just for that time and then taken it up. I don't know. You know, God could have appointed the water for that purpose. But that passage is saying the mountains rose after the flood. Let's look at Noah's summons in verses 15 through 19. God orders Noah, his family, and all the animals to leave the ark. In Genesis 8, 15 through 16, it reads, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. So this is God speaking. He has not spoken to Noah that we know of since God told them to enter the ark. It's been about a year, almost a year, since Noah has heard from the Lord. And Noah has got to be thinking, I need a message from the Lord. I need a message from the Lord. If you, like me, sometimes are thinking that way, we're in good company. Noah did not have access to the Bible like we do, did not have the Holy Spirit with him. He's waiting, waiting on a message from the Lord here. He's waiting on God. Genesis 8, 17 through 18 read, God is speaking. He says, bring out with you every, every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. 
Moody Bible Commentary points out, in this section, as in its thematic uh, counterpart, which was entering the ark, Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, is the thematic counterpart to this passage. That's them entering the ark, and this is them exiting the ark, and they kind of parallel each other. Um, And in this passage, as with its thematic counterpart, Noah's obedience is emphasized by virtue of what he does not do. He does not leave the ark, even though it has been about 320 days. Yet, even though it's been about 320 days, Noah does not leave the ark for about another 56 days until, the God te- until God tells him to. The ground was perfectly dry for occupation. We saw that in Genesis 8, 13 through 14. But, until 50, but not until 56 days later, on the 27th of the second month, at this point when God speaks to him does God, and God commands him to go out of the ark, that's when he leaves the ark. This is truly a profound example of waiting on the Lord. The reason God had Noah and his family wait 56 more days until they set foot onto the new renewed land underscores that humanity is truly being given a second chance to attain the original pre-fall ideal. God is giving humanity a second chance. In fact, we're going to see in the very next chapter in Genesis 9 that Adam, that, that Noah is like a second Adam. Noah and his wife like a second Adam and Eve. They're given a second chance. Why are they given a second chance? Because God loves humanity and he wants a relationship with them. He wanted a relationship with us, so he preserved humanity. God gives detail telling him to leave the ark. All the animals leave too. Birds and every creeping thing. God wants them all to be fruitful and multiply. Verse 18 shows Noah... And his family being obedient. Verse 19. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Notice they went out by families. Literally, this would be translated according to their kind. God created, if you go back to creation in Genesis 1 and 2, God created things, animals, life based off families according to their kind, and they are leaving according to their kind as well. Noah waited on the Lord. I want to respend the remainder of this time focusing on some applications. God is sovereign, and Noah obeys. God is sovereign. God is in control. Do we doubt God's power? Do we question the flood or something else in the Bible, even though we trust him to make the sun rise tomorrow morning? Usually we question when something bad is going on, but do we remember all the good things that work every day? The pastor, Megan, and I were under in high school and first part of college, uh, had taught biology before he was a pastor. And he used to share something um, uh, that the, our, our bodies have many things within them that if they just like were together, they would be explosive. Yet everything's worked perfect. Everything works perfectly in our bodies. So we're not on a day-to-day basis exploding and things like that. God created life just perfectly. And all these things work well many, many, many days. And for most people, 
Obviously, we all get sick, and that will happen because we live in a fallen world, but there are so many things that work. Are we praising God for that, worshiping God for that, or only doubting and questioning God when something doesn't work right, when the tornado comes or the severe weather or the lightning strikes or, or the sickness comes? Do we doubt the flood even though we pray to God about other things? See, I believe in an awesome God. I believe that the scriptures show just an amazing God, all powerful and present everywhere, even outside of time, and all-knowing, omniscient. And he is just so amazing and so majestic and so powerful beyond all of our comprehension that even when I start to have a doubt trickle in my mind because we have so many thoughts go through our minds, and I do too, The Holy Spirit and my own mental faculties remind me God is amazing. God is powerful. And he does give us the right to question him. He does give us the right to even pray, why, God, why? And if you read the Psalms, we see psalmists doing that. And that's that's okay, but take it the next step. Take it the next step and search the scriptures and and I would love to talk to you and help you explore different things. Talk to Christian friends as well and, and, and seek the answers. And I think when you're going through difficulty and you're questioning the Lord, we'll, we'll, we'll give you hope and give you help and give you support and give you peace and give you comfort and give you care. Many times he does that through his church. He does that through his word and certainly does it through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Do we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do we believe that God still does miracles? Do we believe... The rapture is going to happen someday. You know, Jesus, his first miracle, John chapter 2, turned water into wine. And it's a greater miracle because it was water into wine, not water into grape juice. And it takes time for that wine to ferment. It's not as great of a miracle if it was water into grape juice, okay? It's a greater miracle because it was water into wine, because it skips all the fermentation process. See, if somebody saw that wine and examined that wine, they would probably say it took X amount of days or X amount of months for that water to ferment and make the wine. But Jesus shortened the process to a matter of minutes, And he can do that with distant starlight. He can do that with anything because he is the creator. He's not bound by these other types of things. It's an awesome miracle. Do we believe those miracles? Do we believe that someday we will be raptured or we will be translated right to heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord? We can trust God. He is totally powerful, completely amazing and completely awesome and completely worthy of praise and worship. And in that way, we must be obedient to the Lord as well. We must be obedient to the Lord like Noah. We are reminded how awesome God is. We must be obedient to the Lord. I I recently heard, um, and I don't think I've shared this in a sermon. It wasn't in the manuscript, so if so, it's extra credit, and it's extra credit again. Um, There was a new star found like 13 million light years away from us, okay? Very, 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 very far away. And by the time they found it, it had already, it was so big and so amazing that it already had been supernovated or or, or destroyed as well, okay? And there were articles about this about three or four weeks ago. And it brings up the question about distant starlight getting getting to the earth. And I heard one particular person say, you know that we can make diamonds artificially. I didn't know that. 
We can make diamonds artificially. We can make diamonds like synthetic diamonds. And if somebody examines a diamond and they don't know it's artificially made, it's synthetic, they would look at the diamond and study the diamond and think it took many, many, many years, okay, crushed in the earth for that diamond to form. But that's not the case. We compressed time and made that diamond artificially. So it only took a matter of what, hours or days or however long it took for the machines to make the diamond. And God can do the same thing with distant starlight, with everything. Everything had to be so perfect at creation that God just made things the way he wanted them to be. It's just amazing. We serve an amazing God and we must be obedient to the Lord as Noah was. We must be willing to wait on the Lord. I don't know what you are waiting on the Lord for right now. I'm sure we all have things that we are praying about and waiting for answers. And I encourage you, I challenge you, I exhort you. See Noah's example here. Verses 13 and 14, which we looked at last week. Everything's dry. The dove goes out. The dove doesn't come back. He's out on his own, enjoying the new creation. But Noah doesn't leave the ark until the Lord tells him, it's okay. You can leave the ark. We must be willing to act when the Lord says to act. Noah waited for maybe a whole year without hearing from the Lord, but he patiently waited. Can we trust the Lord? God's way is right. Don't take matters into your own hands. You know, it would have been easy for Noah to say, okay, let's disembark. We're not waiting anymore. Let's disembark. But he didn't do that. He waited on the Lord. Think of ways that we take matters into our own hands instead of waiting on the Lord. How many times do we try to compromise the scriptures and do things our own way? I thought of a few. Cohabitating outside of the bond of marriage. Living with your significant other in a sexual relationship outside the bond of marriage would be one way. Having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. We say things like trying a shoe before you buy it. However, marriage is not a commercial product, is it? That you buy and sell and trade and all that. No. God's way is right. And not our way. Marrying an unbeliever. See 2 Corinthians 6.14 about not being unequally yoked. Instead of obeying the Lord, we take matters into our own hands. Maybe you have had an addiction, but you will not get help. You think no one knows about the pornography that you look at occasionally, but God is calling you to get help. Maybe it's another addiction. Maybe it's alcohol abuse or drug abuse or, or, self, or, or, or the addiction of um, the opinion of others or, some, or codependency or other things. What about placing things in front of God? I'm too busy. I'll read my Bible tomorrow. Look up Psalm 4.4 and Psalm 119 about that. What about placing things in front of the church? We say our family will only miss church occasionally. Our family doesn't need Wednesday night youth group or children's ministry or a small group or a Bible study. Or I, or I don't need to serve in the church. I like one thing David Jeremiah shared in a message about his recent book. He, he said, we should all be involved in corporate worship, some type of a small group, which could factor in Sunday school, Bible study, things like that, and serving in the church. God calls us all to different gifts of service. It could be serving as a prayer warrior. It could be serving as a children's leader. It could be serving with a food pantry. Serve small group worship. 
And we can trace those all back to the Bible. But what about when we say, I'm too busy. I'm not gonna trust the Lord for this right now. Maybe the Lord has called you to be involved in ministry. I actually believe we are all called to support the church in ministry with your gifts. Well, we obey the Lord. Do we recognize that God is in control? I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. He shared, there is no maverick molecule. There's no maverick molecule. God is in control. And if God is in control, we can trust him. We can trust that nothing comes across our path that he has not allowed and or approved or even caused for his purposes. And his purposes are good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Dearly Father, we come to you right now and I thank you for this just amazing, awesome example of how Noah waited on the Lord. More than that, I thank you for the example of Noah's obedience and Noah's obedience tracking back to your sovereignty, your providence, your purposeful sovereignty. I thank you because every time I study creation and space and earth and weather and meteorology or whatever it might be, astronomy, it seems to point biology, everything back to your awesome creation and how awesome you are. You put earth in the Goldilocks zone of our solar system. You put our solar system in the Goldilocks zone of the Milky Way. You put the Milky Way in the Goldilocks zone of the universe. Everything perfect for life, creating DNA, putting everything together. Help us trusting in you. Help us waiting on you. Lord, I know that there are many of us waiting on certain things right now, whether it's healing, whether it's help, whether it's support. I pray that you will encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. During this closing song, uh, if the Lord has laid anything on your heart and you want to come forward in prayer, the altars are open, and we'll have people here to pray with you if you would like that. If you're able to stand with us, God is